You know, after uh, what we've already done, I'm ready to go straight to communion. Uh, between the music and the baptisms, you know, that particular baptism with Sierra, I just was watching that, and she was asleep in Timothy's arms, and I thought, you know, that's what God did for me. I was asleep, and he came and got me. And then Timothy handed that little girl over to her parents, and then she started to fuss and cry, and I thought, and that's the way it works too. <laughs> that's the way it works. I want to start out with a children's story. I have six kids and three grandkids, actually four. I have one on the way. I have six children, uh, 31 down to 21, and this is a book that I read many, many times to them and was one of their favorites. It's called Going on a Bear Hunt. Retold by Michael Rosen and illustrated by Helen Oxenbury. We're going on a bear hunt. We're going to catch a big one. What a beautiful day. We're not scared. Uh-oh, grass, long wavy grass. Can't go over it, can't go under it. Oh, no, we've got to go through it. Swishy swashy, swishy swashy, swishy swashy. <laughs> We're going on a bear hunt. We're going to catch a big one. What a beautiful day. We're not scared. Uh-oh, a river, a deep, cold river. We can't go over it. We can't go under it. Oh, no, we've, come on, got to go through it. Splash, 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 splash. We're going on a bear hunt. We're going to catch a big one. What a beautiful day. We're not scared. Uh-oh, mud, thick, oozy mud. We can't go over it. We can't go under it. Oh, no, we've got to go through it. Squelch, squirt, squelch, squirt, squelch, squirt. We're going on a bear hunt. We're going to catch a big one. What a beautiful day. We're not scared. Uh-oh, a forest, a big dark forest. We can't go over it. We can't go under it. Oh, no, we've got to go through it. Stumble trip, stumble trip, stumble trip. We're going on a bear hunt. We're going to catch a big one. What a beautiful day. We're not scared. Uh-oh, a snowstorm, a swirling, whirling snowstorm. We can't go over it. We can't go under it. Oh, no, we've got to go through it. Hoo-woo. 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 We're going on a bear hunt. We're going to catch a big one. What a beautiful day. We're not scared. Uh-oh, a cave, a narrow, gloomy cave. We can't go over it. We can't go under it. Oh, no, we've got to go through it. Tiptoe, tiptoe, tiptoe. What's that? One shiny wet nose, two big furry ears, two big goggly eyes. It's a bear. Quick, back through the cave, tiptoe, tiptoe, tiptoe. Back through the snowstorm, hoo-woo, Back through the forest, stumble trip, stumble trip, stumble trip. Back through the mud, squelch, squirt, squelch, squirt, squelch, squirt. Back through the river, splash, 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 splash. Back through the grass, swishy, swashy, swishy, swashy, swishy, swashy. Get to the front door, open up the door, up the stairs. Oh, no, we forgot to shut the door, back downstairs. Shut the door, back upstairs, into the bedroom, into the bed, under the covers. And we're not going on a bear hunt again. I want us to listen or hear how the psalmist 
tells the same story. And I know that typically you'll stand and read for God's Word, but I'm going to actually teach through the psalm. And so I'd rather have you stand for the next 15 or 20 minutes. I'm going to let you sit, and we're going to walk through Psalm 42. And I'll do some detours to some other places, but that's the way I'm going to do it this morning, if that's okay. So you're standing inside, and you're sitting on your behind as I teach, okay? Now, I'm going to Psalm 42, which for me is a very familiar psalm. And in fact, before I ever read it in the Bible, as a young follower of Christ on a college campus, uh, at my age, it was one of the songs that we actually sang as a small gathering of Christian men and women on this college campus. And so the first time I ever heard it wasn't read or I didn't read it. I actually sang it. And this is the way that we sang it. As the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after thee. You, O Lord, are my heart's desire, and I long to worship thee. And it just created this picture, I remember for me, of like I was imagining this longing, this like this serene moment of this deer down by this brook, this very intimate time with this deer and at the water brook. And, and I was almost praying as I would sing that psalm that that's what God would do for me and that that's what I wanted. The problem, I had, problem is I'd never read the psalm, and I'd never read deeply enough into the psalm. And that's what we're going to do right now. Psalm 42, verse 1. He says, as the deer pants for the water brooks. Now, stop right there for a second. By the way, I'm in the New American Standard, which is really close to the ESV. Okay, so it's in your program in the ESV, but it's going to be on the screen in the NAS. He says, as the deer pants for the water. Just notice this first. It, it ought to be odd to us that it's a deer and not a camel. But I want you to know there's a point here. A camel is a self-sufficient animal that knows how to, like, save up water and then go for days without drinking. Not true with the deer. The deer has to come back again and again and again and again. And this is a deer, he's saying. And this is the Middle East. He's talking about a deer. He says, as the deer pants for the water brooks. He says, so my soul pants for thee, O God. Verse 2, my soul thirsts for the living God. That word there, thirst, it's talking about a slow agony of despair. That's where we're going here. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. He said, when shall I come and, and appear before God? Verse 3, my tears, my tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? Now, that's a different picture. This is, a, this is a writer who's saying, God, where are you? Where am I? And how did I get here? And when other people look at me, they say, well, look at your life. Where's your God? Because I don't want what I see in you necessarily. His tears have been his food day and night. Verse 4, he says, these things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me. He's hurting. He said, for I used to go along. Verse 4, I used to go along with the throng, and I used to lead them in procession to the house of God. Implied there was a day when it felt intimate. There was a day when I was close. There was a day when you seemed near. There was a day that my life didn't look and feel this way. But it's not today. With a voice of joy, he's remembering, with a voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. I knew what that was like, he's saying here. Verse 5, why are you in despair, O oh my soul? That word despair means to be cast down and humbled. He's saying, how bent my being, how I moan for thee. He's in a fetal position, clinging the ground with his body. 
Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? He's groaning. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. What's implied? Again, praise him. Today, it's not easy at all. I hope in God, for I shall again praise him. And this is important, not to be delivered from what's going on here, but he says, for the help of his presence. Oh, my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, I remember thee from the land of the Jordan, the peaks of Hermon and Mount Mazar. These are places that were familiar to him, where he knew he had experienced connection with God. And things felt very different than they do now. And then in verse 7, he says this, deep calls to deep at the sound of thy waterfalls, and all thy breakers and thy waves have rolled over me. Now, commentators don't always know what to do with this deep calls to deep, but let me just say this. He's describing being totally underwater and looking up and being overwhelmed. And he says somehow that in this place of deep despair, the deep calls to deep. That somehow in this place, God can speak to me and I can hear him in ways that I cannot hear any other time. He says, the Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime and his song will be with me in the night, a prayer to the God of my life. I'm going to summarize some Psalm 42. Can't go over it, can't go around it, can't go under it. Sometimes you will go through it. You can hear the same thing in Psalm 23, which is, just, again, another very familiar psalm. He said, the, the, the writer saying, the Lord is my shepherd. Stop right there. Who's the shepherd in the psalm? Say it. The Lord. So somebody's leading here, and it's the Lord. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leaves me beside quiet waters. He does restore my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. But then it turns in verse 4. Even though I walk through what? The valley of the shadow of death. I fear no evil because what? The valley of the shadow of death is not a scary place? No, he says, I fear no evil for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. And then in verse 5, he says, Thou dost prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Now, you think about that for a second. Thou dost, the shepherd, is preparing a table before me where? In the presence of my enemies. Who's preparing the meal and who's inviting the people to the table? And back then, I shared this, some of this with the guys yesterday. Back then, when you sat down to have a meal, you didn't just sit down at a table. You reclined at a table. And by, by the way, you, you ate just like this. And one of the reasons you only ate with your friends is because this is a very vulnerable position to be in. If you come after me, I cannot defend myself. And the psalmist is saying, thou put me at a table in a defenseless place. And there are enemies seated around that table. And yet somehow in that place where you may have led me, you do, you do what? There. He says, thou hast anointed my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Can't go over it, can't go around it, can't go under it. There's a whole lot of times you're going to have to go, say it, through it. 
Yet when the, when the waves roll over us, and I'm speaking autobiographically here, when the waves roll over us, what do we often pray? Lord, help me to avoid this. Help me go around it. Help me to go under it. Help me to go over it. Get, get, get me out of this. Do anything. Do anything. Just don't let me have to go through it. And then when we find ourselves in the valley of the shadow of death, what do we pray? Lord, get me out of this valley. Lord, get me away from this table. Get me out of the company of these enemies. And we often assume that it would be to God's greater glory for him to deliver us from those circumstances, to take us around it, over it, or under it, but not through it. And the Bible doesn't read that way. I can flip to the right in the book of Hebrews. Some of you, it's familiar. The writer says, what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon and Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who by faith, I love this part, conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained pr promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. Give me that. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured, not accepted, accepting their release in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. Verse 36, and others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also in chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. Men and women of whom the world was not worthy going through it, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground, and all of these having gained approval through their faith in the midst of that, did not receive even yet what was promised to them, it says in Hebrews, because God has provided for us something better, that apart from us, they wouldn't be made perfect. You know what that means? That means some of these men and women haven't received yet the reward of what they went through. And you know why they haven't? They're waiting to receive it when we receive ours. It's mind-boggling to think of that with what I just read. And if we do go through it, we do everything we can not to feel the impact of what we're going through when we're going through it. And this is some of the theme of what I dealt with with the men yesterday. When the waves roll over us, what do we do? We'll check out. We live in denial. We'll minimize what's happening. We'll, we'll, we'll rationalize things, justify it. We'll medicate with sex, drugs, alcohol, recreation, religion, sex, work. We'll get busy. We'll even spiritualize or attempt to spiritualize what's happening. And we say things that aren't true, like God won't give you more than you can handle, my friend. Well, let me just tell you, God will give you more than you can handle. And he probably already has. And have you ever thought to consider that it might be the mercy of God that he led you to a place in your life that would be more than you could handle? That he's led you to a place in your life where life doesn't work. If you go back to Genesis 3, if you go back to Genesis 3, actually you go before Genesis 3, man, life did work. And it worked really well for the man with God. Except that God looked at that man and said, it's not good that you're alone, which just catch this here. God was not even enough for the man. That God, God made the man with a built-in need for someone else like him. So that even when the man was alone in the garden with God, God looked at that man and said, it's not good that he doesn't have someone like him. There's a need that he has that I built into him that I myself don't even meet. And by the way, the man didn't know he had the need. God did. 
which is why God then gives the man a job in the garden. And in the job of naming the animals, the man awakens to the need that God already knew that he had. And then after the man was awakened to the need, God put the man asleep and created Eve and then woke him up and then brought Eve to him. And those two had everything they were made for. They flourished with God. And God was their God, and they were human, and they needed him, and everything they needed, God provided. And God said to them, there's one thing I'm not going to let you have in this garden, and it's that tree in the middle of the garden. Now, the tree was in the middle of the garden for a reason. It wasn't off in the corner where they could forget about it. Then all this good that life was, and all this flourishing that they had, that there was a tree that reminded them that there was a, gar- there was a God in the garden, and it wasn't them. In fact, it didn't have to be them. And if they could remember that, that they're human, made needy, and made in need of each other, and made in need of him, that life would work for them. But the lie of the serpent was, you don't need God. And they believed him. And they ate from the tree. And then in Genesis 3, God addresses the serpent. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 14, he says, And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle, more than every living beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. God curses the serpent. But then he says this, verse 15. He says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He's saying right now, when all, it looks like I'm totally out of control here. It looks like you have won this. He's saying, just remember, there's a bigger battle going on. And that battle is going to be between you and this woman and all that are of her. And between her seed specifically, we know from the New Testament, is the seed of the woman is Christ. And he says, and in this cataclysmic battle, Satan, between you and this seed of the woman, Jesus, Genesis 3.15 is John 3.16. He says, but in this battle, you, there's going to be a battle. You will wound the seed of the woman on the heel, but he will wound you on the head. There will be three days when the seed of the woman will limp, and it will appear that you've gotten the upper hand. But this seed of the woman will defeat you because the headroom is the fatal wound. So here's what I want you to hear right now. He curses the serpent. Now he's actually turned toward the man and the woman. Hadn't even addressed them yet specifically about the consequences of what they've done. But he's already paving the way home for them. He's already promising the Messiah. He's a good, good shepherd, and he's ever leading me back home, we sang. And he hadn't even addressed them yet with the consequences, but he's already paving the way home for them. He's saying, I know you didn't think you needed me, but I'm going to provide the way back through my son Christ, Genesis 3.15. Now, you got to know what's important here is God doesn't after that curse the man or the woman. He doesn't curse them like he curses the serpent. In fact, the context now shifts from curse to mercy. And God is going to show mercy to the man and the woman. We know that because in verse 15, he's saying, I'm bringing him back. And then I'm going to paraphrase the next four verses, okay? And I'm going to do it in in sort of Western uh, American kind of pace of life, okay? Here's, here's what God says is going to happen now, okay? Because, by the way, life used to always work for you, okay? I, I told the guys this. I said, look, I said, there's only two pages in this Bible at the front where life works, and there's only about two pages in the back where life works, and this is where we live. 
And here's how it works. I, I just think if I got out of high school or college, that, you know, the answer is going to be like, I just gonna, I'm going to find the right job. Like, I'm, I'm going to find the job. It's going to be, like, satisfying, fulfilling. It's going to work. I'm going to be good at it. It's going to maximize my gifts. I'm going to get paid for it, whatever it might be. And I go get a job. And you know what? I might have a great job. And it might be a better job than I ever thought I'd have. But the truth is this. I do that job for a while. It's still going to be a J-O-B. It's still a job. And it's hard work. And thorns and thistles it will bear for you. And then, you know, we go past the job and we go, well, you know what? Man, if I find a soulmate, if I find a man or a woman that will complete me and they're who I've been looking for my whole life and I think it's right and when I'm with them, I feel so complete, sort of, sort of like what the man thought in the garden when he saw Eve and it's like, oh, my gosh. So then we get married and I'm going to tell you, we thought, we thought work was a J-O-B, okay? <laughs> and, and I love my wife. I've been married 35 years, but it's, it's one of, I didn't say the, it's one of the hardest things I have ever done. And there's nothing that I've ever done other than what I'm about ready to mention that has shown me more of my inadequacy and how many times I've had to see my own failure. I don't know what I'm doing most of the time. Well, then we think, well, God, you know, this is hard, but maybe if we have kids. <laughs> you know, like if I just have these children and I've got adopted kids, biological kids, I don't care how you have them, but like I just want them and I just want to give my life to them and we're going to do this and I'm going to launch them into the world and... Oh, God. All right. All right. So, I am the richest man I know in the things that make a man rich. But I'm going to tell you, there's not been anything, anything that has put me in a fetal position, grasping my wife's hand in bed at night, fighting with her even over things, like, like crushing my soul sometimes than the pain of loving these six children. And so if I get past the job and the marriage and the kids, now I'm going to give you the big equal. This is just the checkmate. Okay, that body that you're in is going to fail you. And, and, and I told the guys, I said, look in the mirror. You, you never thought you'd look like your dad, but you're starting to look like him already. <laughs> There's something in us that knows we were made to live forever, which is why we all think we're going to. And by the way, we all will, but these bodies now won't. And it will betray you. And it will fail you. And it will humble you when it does. And if this was a prayer meeting right now and I said prayer requests, most of the prayer requests would be around health issues because it's the great humbler in this life. And anything, work, your marriage, your children, your body, that takes a man or the woman that thinks they don't need God and thinks they can live without him and takes that man and woman and gets them back into a posture like this, where they can cry out and say, my life doesn't work. I need you. I was made for more than this. I was made for you, and I need you. Anything that puts me here is the mercy of God. And it's the road that we walk home back to a need of God who loves us. He is a good, good shepherd who does what? leads us back home. And he leads us back home through the recognition of our neediness of him in a world right now that does not work for us because we were made for more. Religion is an attempt to make life work or to remove me from the admission that it will not. Christianity, on the other hand, is the admission that life will never work this side of heaven and the grieving of this truth is what leads me to the only relationship that offers me the life I was made for. 
I'm going to say that again. Religion is even an attempt to make life work or to remove from me the admission that it will not. Christianity, on the other hand, it's the admission that life will never work this side of heaven. And grieving this truth leads me to the only relationship that offers me the life I was made for. In his book, Maximum Faith, George Barnes says this. He said, I have studied Christians, followers, Christ followers, and I look to see when, what, ha- what circumstances create what he calls maximum exponential spiritual growth. And by the way, I'm not going to recommend these, and he doesn't either, but here's what he says. He says, if you go to prison, you're going to grow. He says, if you go through a divorce, you're going to grow. He says, I watch people that go through health crises, and they're going to grow. People that experience bankruptcy, there's growth. In the crisis of a child, there's growth. And I just named for you the impact of Genesis 3. It's a curse not on us, but on the environment that we're in to cause us to fall back on our knees, to walk the road home that God calls us down. Three times the apostle Paul prayed, God, help me to get over it, under it, around it, just not through it. And yet this same Paul prayed that he would know Jesus and the power of his resurrection, but also the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death. Jonah wanted to go another way. Even Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane wanted to go under it, around it, over it, but not through it, which is crazy. When before time, in the council of the Godhead, this was his hour, and yet here he was in the Garden of Gethsemane getting ready to go, and he's afraid. He's fully God, but he's also fully man. And he was so afraid he didn't want to be alone, so he asked his best friends, will you be with me in this hour? And they came, and then what happened? They fell asleep. So it's one thing to be afraid, it's nothing to be alone. So he's afraid, now he's alone, and then he's hurt. And then he's sweating drops of blood saying, God, is there another way? Can you take this cup from me? And then we know from the Gospel of Luke that an angel actually appeared to him in that moment. Like a physical manifestation, a reminder, you're going, but you won't go alone. And that's when Jesus stands up full of passion, anger, wanting, willing. And he says, not my will, but thine be done. And then for the joy set before him, he went to endure the cross, to despise the shame, to rescue us, and to ultimately sit down at the right hand of his father. Can't go over it, can't go under it, can't go around it. There's a whole lot of times we're going to have to go through it. And when we go through it, here's the promise. It's just amazing. It's the place where deep often does call to deep. The promise is always, though, you won't have to go through that alone. I'm going to show a picture up here, uh, if you can pull it up. Um, I'm not going to tell the whole story for time. Um, That's me 15 months ago. And there was about a week at the end of this whole journey for me where there was nothing anybody could do. And I had to be alone in a hospital room because no one could come in the room because of what I had and what was happening. And... Even when nurses came in, they'd hazmat up to walk into the room with me. And doctors were at a place where it was just a waiting game to see if my body was going to turn on. And I spent about four or five days teetering on this edge of knowing I was slipping, like literally I was slipping away. And I didn't know it was humanly possible to be that sick and that weak and still be here. 
And I can't tell you I had all these intimate times with God. I can't tell you that I was listening to worship music. I, I had nothing in me. I couldn't even lift my head on a pillow. And there was one afternoon that I just very meekly, I just said, God, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. And there's been probably two times in my life that I think I've heard very clearly from God. I'm not here from him all the time this way, but like where I think I just heard him. And in the quiet of that room, I said, God, have mercy on me. And this was clear. He said to me, Jeff, this is merciful. This is merciful. And it was a moment of deep calling to deep because I was not alone in that room. In that moment, I knew that I wasn't. This room today is full of stories, and loneliness, pain, hurt, sadness. By the way, the physical stuff is a big deal. The relational stuff's harder. <laughs> Fear, shame, guilt. But deep will be calling to deep if you can listen. And I want you to know, you may be there because you wandered off into there. But you may have a shepherd that led you there. So you'd hear him. And you'd know his witness in his tenderness, and his care. As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for thee, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. Oh, my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, I remember thee from the land of the Jordan, the peaks of Hermon and Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the sound of thy waterfalls. Thy waves have rolled over me, yet the Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime. His song will be with me in the night, the prayer to the God of my life. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are with us, that we are not alone. Uh, I imagine that all of us resonate with so much of what Jeff said. This life doesn't work as we thought it would or as it should. And so, God, we're crying out from the deep. Uh, and we're thankful, God. We're so grateful that you hear our cry. That in your mercy, you meet us, care for us, and restore us in relationship to you. Father, would you remind us of that again as we walk through it? Be near and be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.